Welcome to the C21 Podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Today we hear from Bosch creator and best-selling author Michael Connolly about the character's enduring appeal and his lawsuit against the makers of ChatGPT. Electric Entertainment's Dean Devlin on the benefits of AI, fast channels and working with Roland Emmerich. Terramator Studios' Michael Franchowski on reimagining Tarzan and Lineup Industries' Julian Curtis on his key takeaways from MIPCOM 2023. Michael Connolly is the author of 38 novels, including number one New York Times bestsellers Desert Star, The Dark Hours and The Law of Innocence. He's also known for The Lincoln Lawyer, Rennie Ballard and Harry Bosch with the latter book series adapted into a TV show for Amazon Prime Video as part of its inaugural move into originals a decade ago. Bosch, which stars Titus Welliver as a hard-bitten Los Angeles Police Department homicide detective, ran to five seasons on the subscription streamer, with spin-off Bosch Legacy spearheading originals on Amazon's ad-supported service Freevee. With the second season of the latter debuting earlier this month, taking Bosch's total season tally to date to an impressive seven, Connolly spoke to me about the series' enduring appeal, his relationship with Amazon, and concerns about artificial intelligence, with the author, alongside Game of Thrones' George R.R. R. Martin and others, recently launching a class-action lawsuit against ChatGPT creator OpenAI. I'm not sure if you remember, but we um, we actually met at MIPTV in Cannes in 2014, I think, so that was just a little while after Bosch had been commissioned as part of Amazon's pilot season and then just just debuted, I think, in in February 2014. So here we are almost 10 years later, seven seasons on, the second season of the spin-off, Bosch Legacies debuting. And there's a third already in the works, I believe, as well. So, you know, did you ever imagine back then that the the show would take on the life that it has? No, it's... uh... I didn't imagine it back then. It's hard to imagine now. Um, it's had a just a tremendous run, you know, and it's, you know, it, 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 you have to have an amazing amount of good luck, but also amazing amount of good people and supporters to have something like a TV show run that long. Uh, you know, I've always been amazed that even uh, that there was a desire for Harry Bosch books, but that's, uh, you know, I write those books by myself, essentially. And of course, I have publishers and everything, but for a TV show to uh, go this kind of distance, it, you were talking about dozens and dozens of people doing their best work and it all kind of coming together like a symphony. And that's what has happened with Bosch and it's, and it's pretty rare. And obviously key in all of those relationships is the original star that you started out with, Titus Welliver, who is the incarnation of that character that you came up with in the books all those years ago. He's an exec producer on the series, has been throughout, you know, and is integral as well to the uh, the Legacy series as well. So how's that relationship with him evolved over time? Uh, it's pretty amazing. Um, yeah, it's, it's gone beyond a professional relationship and we're uh, pretty tight as friends, which doesn't always happen, you know, because uh, in my life, last 10 years, I've kind of been immersed in the TV business. And so you hear a lot of stories about other people 
we got a great actor when we we chose him but some things that we did just turned out to be lucky um you know titus was kind of the consummate character actor and often most often a villain so to hand this guy his first lead and a uh, positive character at that you know we ended up couldn't i didn't really foresee this happening but we ended up with a guy who's like all in like what can i do to keep this going because this is the best thing that's happened to me in, in terms of my profession and it shows and it translates it's obviously on the screen i mean if you've seen the first two episodes of the new season his performance is just amazing but it goes also to the set of the set you know the crew uh i may have written these books but i'm not the leader of this thing titus is and and he's uh he's a great leader of this crew and they i think they'll follow him where he wants to go and that's an important thing um and that that's one of the probably the key reason why we're talking about the season of a boss show and just talk through the latest season and um just talk about how you're sort of evolving those characters and and obviously the other the other key members of the cast as well yeah, it was interesting because you know it's the same dna but it's a different show uh legacy is a different show it's on a different platform in most places and you know so we got this chance to take the same dna and the same characters and reboot them a bit in season one of legacy and uh we were very much aware that how it was would be a slight pivot in our storytelling and spreading the storytelling to other characters as well and uh you know it ends first season ends on a pretty significant cliffhanger uh because we've had eight years to establish characters and so when maddie bosch gets taken that that grabs people by the heart and so we go into the second season and we were smart enough to know like we can't string this out we can't do this to people because they've already waited a year plus to see what happened and so uh the first two episodes are very much like a self-contained film um and uh it's it's done so very well we use the same um uh director so we'd have a cohesive storytelling through these and then you know and we also use those first first two to to kind of um seed uh the season long uh story and you know we were we chose the book the crossing because we saw it in it a story that could bring our three main characters together and uh and also at the same time pivot Harry Bosch Harry Bosch is still the heart of the show and you know season one has him becoming a private detective and season two has him crossing a gulf to work with a defense attorney and which has always been a huge hesitation in his life so we have a kind of a dramatic thing happening uh within Harry Bosch's head and, and an adjustment if you will a, a difficult adjustment and and so we're we chose that book because of that and because we knew we could it could take us further into his character in a in a new way so that was very important to us so we kind of take care of what happens with Maddie right off the bat and then we uh, kind of slingshot into this uh the new uh, new story that will ultimately bring all three of them together in pretty significant ways so you've published now 24 Harry Bosch novels I believe it is I mean how many of those have been drawn upon for the show so far and how do you divide your time between writing those adapting them for scripts you know and what's what's that process like you know i don't know how many we've used um 
it, it was an unusual deal with Amazon at the beginning. It wasn't like they optioned one book. They they wanted all of Harry Bosch. And so that allowed us from the beginning or allowed me to say, hey, take what you need. I'm not going to, I'm going to keep writing about Harry Bosch and I don't think you'll ever catch up to me. I might've been wrong about that because I didn't, I didn't ever could have seen, foreseen that we'd be talking about 10 seasons and possibly more. And so we have taken very liberally from books, sometimes the entire plot, sometimes like a moment um, or sometimes a relationship. And I, none of us regret that, especially me, um, because I think, you know, you, you gather a momentum and there's no like legal or contractual requirement that we only use my books. So, so we have sprung off into two new stories and so forth. And, um, you know, the, the abduction of Maddie is one of them. It's somewhat based on a book, but it wasn't Maddie who was the victim. So that's, that's a key, uh, kind of look at how we change our storytelling. Yes, it comes from a book, but it's always in service of our, our, our three main characters. And so the process, process of like what we take, I might be going off of your question here, but the process of what we take, we we sit in a writing room, there's about six to seven writers, uh, if you include me, and um, that's where I'm most involved in before we really start writing episodes per se, it's more like the, the bigger concept, what are we doing, what what books are we hitting on, what's going to happen with our, our characters, and that's where my most of my involvement lies there, um, and so like, you know, we're working on season three now, and we're writing scripts, and this is a really a point where I'm not as necessary um, as I think I was, I mean, maybe I would maybe I'm never necessary and they're just being nice to me, but um, it's really in the beginning when I, when we're talking about um, big ways, like episode five, will have this, not, not the details and so forth that I get involved. And I've never said like, don't take that from a book. Cause I'm I want to save that or anything like that. It's like, if it's something, you know, the writers are very much steeped in my, my work. They, they're reading the books as they come. And if there's something that hits them in the right way and it says, Oh, I could use that to, to really, we tell a good story in my episode then it's like have at it just make sure we didn't already use it that's you were now at this point where we're, we often scratch our heads and say like didn't we already use that um you know and and so it, that's kind of off limits or do we change it enough that it's not recognized as having having been used before so i was going to ask you i mean you touched on a few of those points there but you know how, how has your role as a writer and an exec producer evolved on the series you know are you still as involved with the show less involved you, you you've sort of suggested a little bit that you're, you're kind of you know take more of a backseat I'm, I'm interested in the partnership with with eric overmeyer and the other exec producers as well yeah i'd have to admit i've i've pulled back a little bit um that is for a number of reasons one is you know again who who could have foreseen that we'd be making harry bosch you know 10 years on um you know so i've hit six i'm 67 now i want to tr probably enjoy a little bit more free time in my life i'm a book writer first so i always have to um keep that in mind uh, and so i usually write on books on a cycle of december to june and um very much less involved during those months but that in the the cycle got really disturbed by the struggle we had out here in Los Angeles and United States. Um, and that's kind of wrecked the cycle. But until that happened, it just worked out fine that I could be involved in these early stages of deciding what we do. And it's not like I don't dictate that. Uh, it's a it's a joint discussion usually between there on Bosch Legacy. We have two showrunners, Eric Overmeyer and Tom Bernardo. And usually the three of us start talking about that early on. And that's my key involvement. You know, I have written half the scripts I, the last couple of years. 
years, I, like in this new season, I wrote a script with um, Titus as I did in the first season. And I'll write one this, uh, for season three as well. But it's um, I'm not in the room every day. And and the key thing, which I haven't gotten to yet, is that it feels like a machine, which I don't mean to say is in, in, in a negative way. I mean, I think it's so well oiled and, and well done that I don't have to, to be there. I have to admit, like, you know, I wasn't a Hollywood guy. So in the beginning, I wanted to protect my character of Harry Bosch. At that point, I'd invested more than 20 years in him and I wanted to be there. And uh, I don't need to be there anymore because I know Tom and I know Eric and every writer in that room wants to protect Harry Bosch now. They have my complete confidence and they're all great storytellers. So I don't really need to be there. And also, you know, I'm sorry if I'm rambling too much here. But the other thing is, I, I don't if I'm not there, it doesn't mean I don't know what's going on. Every day I get a transcription of notes from the writing room. I don't read them all the time because, I again, I don't have to. But often I do just to see what they're doing, because not because I'm I'm checking them on them. I really don't feel I need to do that at all. It's more like, is there something I can contribute? Can I suggest something uh, once I see what topics they're talking about in terms of uh, Bosch and, and the story? You referenced the writer's strike. You also use an interesting expression there, feels like a machine. Uh, one of the issues that was clearly at the heart of the the, the, the strikes was artificial intelligence. Um, <laughs> I'm wondering, um, you know, what your feelings were about the strike, about the impact that it may have had on you personally, the uh, fellow writers that you know, obviously the series is, is set in LA and, and you know, uh, right at the centre of this this whole uh, situation. So, yeah, the impact on the writers and do you have thoughts on AI and, you know, your feelings as to whether that's a positive or a negative? The um, Well, that's two things. So, first of all, the, the impact of the strike was, was very difficult. I mean, I know lots of writers beyond my show you know we have writing rooms going for uh possible sh other shows and i know everybody and so it's very difficult but it was to me in my opinion and i remember i have a foot in both camps i'm a writer and i'm a producer on these shows but i just think it was a righteous thing because i think how streaming especially in my country has really kind of taken over the entertainment industry, the shows are shorter, so it's much harder for writers to make a uh, a good living. They often have to find a second job in a year, and that in in, in the course of their year, and that is very difficult to do. You know, the, to come from something that's as demanding as writing Bosch to kind of like blank that out, and then then like throw your resources and your skills into something else. It, it just doesn't work that well. So I really felt that the key things that they were looking for in a strike were were needed to keep this industry going now ai is is you know it's i think it's an existential threat to um to writers uh of books as well as um as tv so i was also behind the goals of the uh of the writers guild to get some controls on that and um you know i should let you know i was a member of a, gr a group of writers sued the makers of chat pgt basically real ai um a few a few weeks weeks ago sued it because they like in my own personal example they took my books fed it into the mall of ai and now you could go there and say you know write me a new story about harry bosch and and that to me is a crime uh you know uh, i i gave no consent to this i have no control over it and yet he's my my character we just spent about 20 minutes talking about how i'm involved in the show and i have controls and so forth i have none of that in this ai situation and uh, and then it's always the three C's: consent, 
control and compensation. I got none of that. And that to me is not fair. I'm okay because I've been, have been very fortunate in, in my career. So it's not like I need the money, but there's many, many writers who would like to have that opportunity. And so the lawsuit is about getting things like consent and control. And I don't, and that, you know, if that doesn't happen, it, it changes the game. You know, I happen to be working on a documentary about um, Edgar Allan Poe and there were no copyright laws. And so I see this echo over 175 years. He died 175 years ago. And uh, he would write a story like the pit and the pendulum and sell it to one newspaper or one magazine. And then it would just be copied by newspapers all over the country, all over the world um, publishers could just take it because there was no no protections and 175 years later we're entering this realm of ai where right now there appears to be no protections even though we do have copyright laws and things like that so to me you know i started by saying it's a threat to writers and i and i do believe that and so i was definitely down with what the writers guild was attempting to get in their strikes and they did get some controls on it in some senses um um, the story of of Bosch is the story of streaming as well. I mean, it was at the forefront of Amazon's move into original series. Bosch Legacy spearheaded originals on its um, ad-supported service Freevee. So it's kind of followed that trajectory from subscription to free. Um, and now it's among the first originals to be licensed to third parties via the new uh, Amazon MGM global distribution division. How do you feel about being a flag bearer i guess or you know a symbol i guess of the the shifts that we've seen taking place over the industry over the last 10 years yeah i mean I try to keep my head down and and remember it's about what we're doing and these things are like ripples down down the stream uh, but you do have to pay attention to that and you know the things that you're listing are one are the, some of the reasons why we're still going. And so, you, you, I, you know, there's a certain pride in that. There, there's no streaming character that's lasted nine seasons on any platform anywhere. And uh, we're aware of that in the writing room and in the production rooms. And, and, and when we're filming, there's a, uh, you kind of look around at everybody and think in this suite that we're still doing this. I mean, we've had crew that's been with us the entire run a lot of people and of course actors and so forth and and some writers and so it's it is like a pretty cool place to be and it you know and it all is happening because of guess what because we're making a good show it starts there and on the mul multiple levels of writing acting direction crew all that and and somehow that symphony keeps playing and so hearing about how the show is lasted and how it's being used and as 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 streaming matures and changes and so forth it always uh i think we're we're pretty happy to be on that ride i am I and mean, it's now referred to in some places i've seen as the harry bosch universe um i'm wondering if that's a phrase that you use and as a writer you know what do you make of the proliferation of that term it seems to describe you know what's essentially kind of franchise development and what what do you think that says about the direction of travel for the for the content business um well as long as it's the harry bosch universe and it's not something else i'm pretty happy with with it um you know it's it's to me it's like one of those things where i have to shake my head because that's what i've been doing in my books all along i've always had cross currents of books characters cross paths and so forth and to me 
uh, as a writer, I write like I like to read. And when I come across other writers who do that, I it, like, these kind of aha moments, like I remember that character from this book and now they know each other. And oh my gosh, they're related, you know, that kind of thing. I love that as a reader. And so that, that's what I practice as a writer of books. And so when that is now kind of moving into um, uh, streaming and into uh, the uh, evolution of these stories on screen, it's pr it's pretty fantastic. Um, you know, this uh, uh, going back to your first question, the streaming world has changed. Whereas early in the days of Bosch, the TV show, it didn't really serve Amazon and like with Lincoln Lawyer on Netflix. It doesn't really serve them to have another one of my shows. But now if they're looking at ad supported shows, it does serve. If one show is a performer and it gets uh, Amazon freebie what they need, of course, they're going to look at other shows. And so now the universe starts expanding and hopefully, you know, we'll see other aspects of, of my work uh, start being made and, and linked to, uh, to the uh, center of the wheel, which I guess is always going to be harry bosch have you ever thought about taking the show you know out of la and expanding it in the same way for example like ncis is doing with you know ncis sydney uh well i didn't hear about sydney <laughs> That's that's a pretty ex big expansion of the universe. Um, it's a difficult question because Harry Bosch is so um, entwined with his place, which is Los Angeles. And so my concern, I'm not against that. I'm 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 I'm, I'm up for exploring anything because it really comes down to character. So I'm not. I just I'm hesitant, but I'm not saying no. That will never happen. But I worry about what do you gain by doing that, and what do you lose? And if you lose more than you gain, then then that that's when I start saying, I'm not sure we should do this. But, you know, we'll see. Because uh, one thing I've learned in the last 10 years is how, and, and I knew this to a degree with my books, but books and TV are quite different. But what I was seeing was what happened with the books, that a good character knows knows no boundaries. There's no oceans that separate Harry Bosch from someone watching in, in England or Australia or Italy, you know. And so that lends to the idea that if you have a good character, a good character will travel. And you just got to remember the connection points, the things that people like about that character. And if it's his interaction with his own city, then you got to pay attention to that. And you got to realize that you might be playing with fire if you take him somewhere else or take a character or try to establish a character under the banner of Michael Conley or under the banner of Harry Bosch and place them somewhere else. As a prolific writer and producer of science fiction television and films, Dean Devlin has quite the resume. He wrote 1990s features Universal Soldier, Stargate and Independence Day, working together with celebrated director Roland Emmerich. These days, Chief Executive and Chairman of Los Angeles-based Electric Entertainment, his TV credits include titles like The Librarians, The Outpost, Leverage and new series The Ark for Sci-Fi. Electric has carved out a relationship with Amazon with several shows going out via the Freevee ad-supported streaming service, while at the same time the firm has launched its own fast channels. Devlin was at MIPCOM in Cannes last week and spoke to me there about these developments, the changing nature of the distribution landscape, the US writers and actors' strikes, and the use of AI. My name is Dean Devlin and I am the CEO of Electric Entertainment. Electric Entertainment is a uh, full-service uh, entertainment company, post-studio. Uh, uh, we develop, finance, produce, and distribute worldwide our, all of our shows. Um, we have a, 
a fast channel in the United States called Electric Now and an app. Um, and uh, we just recently launched new fast channel, Electric Now, in Espanol. What are the shows that uh, you've built Electric Entertainment on? What are the ones that you're best known for? Well, I'd say the shows that are, are best known at Electric Entertainment are uh, Leverage, Leverage Redemption, uh, The Librarians, uh, Almost Paradise, uh, The Outpost, and now on Sci-Fi Channel, The Ark. And, um, you know, how have those shows kind of developed over the period that the company's been around? And, uh, you know, how have they developed alongside the changing marketplace and, and the partnerships that you've uh, developed? Well, it's been very difficult for independent companies the last several years because the majors have all launched their own platforms. They want to own all their product and they want to have it on their platform worldwide. So as an indie, uh, uh, we need to own our projects to support our own companies. So uh, uh, it, 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 it caused a lot of problems for independent companies like mine to find places. But we've been incredibly fortunate. Um, a few years ago, we were here. We had one show. Uh, last season, uh, we were here, and we had uh, uh, three shows. And this year, we're, we have four brand new series that are shooting all at the same time. So we've been very fortunate in a, in a difficult market to find partners that will do split rights deals with us, where we can license to the United States and then distribute throughout the entire world. As you say, the, um, the marketplace in some senses has kind of closed down to a degree in terms of uh, distributors wanting to take all rights to the shows that they commission and order, or rather the platforms doing that. But it also seems to be opening up as well with, with new players and new business models, and, and now it's going the other way in terms of a bit more flexibility in terms of those rights deals. That's right. I think for, for a while, all the major platforms wanted to own everything, and in a way that created an opportunity for us because we had uh, network quality shows that, were, that had scope and, and uh, real high quality, but they were independent, so suddenly they were available to the worldwide market when they couldn't get other shows. Now that's starting to change. I think this whole uh, illusion about having a show and amortizing it over 40 years is, it's shown the emperor has no clothes on, and so I think they're all starting to license again, which will make it a much more competitive marketplace coming up. And um, you've been at the forefront of working with some of those players, you know, that are kind of pushing the boundaries, I suppose, in terms of the business models. You have a strong relationship with Amazon and Amazon Freebie in particular as well. Amazon's now introducing advertising within Prime Video as well. How much of those sorts of um, dynamics have a bearing upon, you know, the way that you develop shows and, you know, the kind of programming that you're putting out there? Well. We have something like five shows on Amazon at the moment, but uh, two of them are original shows, new shows. Uh, and then two of our other shows are on uh, more traditional platforms like uh, Sci-Fi and CW. Uh, but working with Amazon has been an absolute joy. They have a, they've assembled an amazing team of people. Uh, uh, we've worked through their uh, AVOD platform, and we've been able to surprise them every single time out. You know, they, it's a, they're a very data-driven company, obviously, and they put out a lot of data on what they expect the show to do. And every time we're able to outperform that, uh, uh, our relationship gets better. <laughs> and what about the fact that they've now moved into distribution as well with Amazon MGM Studios distribution? You know, they're, they're taking some of their originals, their, their streamer originals, and selling them on to the international marketplace. That's you know, a bit of an inflection point as, as well, I suppose, as far as the industry is concerned. Are your shows part of that? And, um, you know, what, what do you make of that development? Well, Amazon doesn't own our shows. They just license it in the territories that they have it. So we sell our shows worldwide. We own all of our own shows. 
But I think it was a natural progression for Amazon to begin to sell the shows that they own. I think everybody, I think all the platforms are realizing that just keeping it on a subscription service is not enough revenue in the long term, that they have to find ways to license it and sell to, to, to uh, different countries where maybe their platform isn't, and maybe even on different platforms where their platform is. You know, sometimes they sell it to free TV when they're doing s streaming. Um, I, I, I think that the era of, of just spending wildly on shows and hoping to recoup everything out of subscription, I think that's, that's dying. And I think that uh, um, we're going to see a lot more fiscal responsibility in making shows. But I don't think that they can reduce how many shows they offer their viewers because if you're going to be paying for a subscription, you're expecting to see a lot of product. So we're going to see a switch, I think, in, in uh, uh, more sensible budgets. Uh, but I don't think we're going to see a decrease in the amount of shows produced. And as you say, you have a number of fast channels, so you're distributing yourself as well. That's been a really exciting space and one that continues to grow as well. Give us the temperature, I suppose, of, of the fast market at the moment. Well, fast has been exploding at a crazy rate. When you look at the percentage of growth in fast channels compared to everything else, it's, it's phenomenal. But yet, if you were to ask anyone you know what a fast channel is, 90% will say they've never heard of it. So I think if it's growing this much before it even has awareness, there's really no ceiling on it. Uh, but we didn't start our fast channel as a business idea. We started ours uh, uh, really from another point of view in that our shows tend to have incredibly loyal fan bases. They're kind of like Star Trek fans. They, they want to dress up like the characters, they want to go to conventions, uh, and they want to form communities online. So we knew we had an enormous fan base on The Outpost, we knew we had an enormous fan base on Leverage, we knew we had an enormous fan base on uh, The Librarians, but they weren't necessarily the same people. So what we thought is if we started our own fast channel and our own app, we could aggregate those fans together as a block and then send them to whatever we're doing. And, and we were actually able to do that with The Ark. Uh, NBC Universal allowed us to put the first two episodes of The Ark on our platform. We were able to get our fans excited about it, and by episode three, they all migrated back to Sci-Fi Channel. We ended up with six and a half million people watching the show. I think it's really kind of remarkable. Uh, that must have been quite an interesting discussion, you know, that, again, which speaks to the growing flexibility, I suppose, in, in, in terms of the market, the complexity of the windowing strategies around the deals that you have to structure as well. I think the old thinking of, well, you have to pay me for every single place you play this show, I think that's starting to, to give way to the idea of we have to find audiences and we have to aggregate those audiences. And so I think in the case of The Ark, NBCU was really innovative because they not only allowed us to show it on our platform, but then we allowed them to put it on all these other apps that they had, whether it was the Bravo app or the NBC app, basically every app they had. And while not all the people watching Sci-Fi Channel loved the show, we found a huge audience outside of the Sci-Fi Channel who then migrated to it. So not only did we end up with a huge audience, but Sci-Fi grew their audience from people who don't normally watch the channel. It's, it's interesting, I guess, as a, someone whose passion is the production side of the business as well, the, you know, to, to manage all of that vast complexity of, of rights. I mean, how do, you, how do you balance your commitments and your time in terms of you know, the distribution and, and the development of programming? Well, for me, I very early in my career learned where my strike zone was and what I'm good at. And I'm pretty good when I'm left to my own devices. And I'm not so good when I work for other people. So in order to work in my strike zone, I had to learn business. <laughs> and I had to learn how to build my own company to give myself the freedom to work the way I'm good at. Uh, because most of the time when I try to work for other people, I, I fail miserably. <laughs> What about the, the strikes that we've seen in the US? Uh, they must have had an impact 
on you. They've obviously had an impact across the US, but also around the world as well. What can you say about that? Well, the strikes, the strikes were, were devastating for a lot of people. Uh, uh, a lot of the Indies either went out of business or, or came very close. We came close. Uh, I'm grateful that, it's, that the Writers Guild uh, uh, has resolved uh, their issues. I don't think it needed to take five months, personally, but I'm glad it's over. Um, and now I just hope SAG, uh, you know, can, can resolve their issues. But it, yeah, it's, it's, it's been devastating on the business and, and not just the studios and the writers or the actors, but the caterers, the grips, you know, people have lost their homes. You know, a, a strike is a nuclear weapon and you have to be careful when you use it. But I think that this was a time where the entire business had changed its business model and yet everybody working in the business was expected to work in contracts that were created under a totally different business model. So I think the strike was inevitable. Um, I don't think it needed to last as long as it did when you look at the final results, but uh, I am glad it's over. What about AI? You're a keen proponent of, of sci-fi and AI plays into uh, the writer's strike and, and the screen actor's strike as well. It's a key issue facing the industry. What are your views on artificial intelligence? Well, you know, I work with a lot of computer engineers because of our digital effects and our post-production workflows. And they said something to me that I thought was very interesting. They said, look, if you take the world's smartest chess computer and you have it play against the world's smartest chess computer, every single game is a draw and they're the most boring games you've ever witnessed in your life. But if you take that same chess computer and have it play against the greatest human chess player of all time, sometimes it wins, Sometimes the chess player wins. All the games are really interesting. So I think AI is a fantastic tool when used in the hands of the right people. I think the idea of it replacing is ridiculous. And, and I don't ever see that. I mean, I can see someone trying to do it and making very mediocre content, but I think what makes AI special is when an artist can use it as a tool to help create and, and maybe speed up the process or bring in information that they don't know or enrich things. But I, I don't see it as ever being a replacement for writers or actors. As an artist yourself, are you using it in any way already? I've, I've always used AI wherever I can. Usually it's in post-production to make the, picture, the images look better or to make the sound crisper. Uh, I think it's a wonderful tool for research although we know AI has a tendency to hallucinate, so you always have to check the research you get from AI, but it can speed up the process when you're trying to learn about a subject you don't know about. And so how do you think this is gonna kind of play out, I suppose, in the years to come? And I don't know, what are the other challenges, the opportunities perhaps that you see in the industry? Well, you know, look, it, it, like anything, it will ultimately eliminate some jobs. I mean, that's just inevitable. But I think ultimately, creatively, you're always going to need creative talent. I mean. I'm old enough to remember when they thought that uh, 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 there wouldn't be any real instruments anymore because they, digital instruments were so good. Yeah, we like digital instruments, but we also like real instruments and they're never going away. And I, I feel the same way about writers and actors. What about budgets and the economy? Sorry to bring it down <laughs> onto a, uh, a bit of a low perhaps, but yeah, there's, there's no escaping the fact that as we've, we've kind of touched upon, the industry has changed, spending has changed, budgets have been cut. It's, it's, it's harder for scripted in some ways, but in other ways, um, one of your former collaborators, Roland Emmerich, uh, um, you know, is, is busily working on a project which is the most expensive drama um, ever made, apparently in Europe, with uh, his, his gladiator drama, Those About to Die. So, um, yeah, how is your feeling, I suppose, about 
the state of scripted in, in 2023 and beyond? Well, I can only speak for us. Uh, this is the first year we have four scripted shows in production and we've never had this many shows. So, so it's not affecting us negatively. But I think when it comes to budgets, I think overall, we're gonna have to get smarter about budgets. We can't just keep making shows at $15 million an episode. It, it's not sustainable. Uh, and I don't think it's necessary. You know, I, I think some shows, yeah, they're, you know, I don't know if you could have done Game of Thrones for a budget, but there's a lot of shows where I don't see the money on the screen and I think it's wasteful. Uh, and I don't think we can live in a time where we just throw money at every single show. I think we have to be creative. We have to be uh, inventive in how we tell these stories. And yet they still have to have the, the quality. They have to, the, to be visually exciting. Uh, but I, I, I think that um, solving these things creatively is part of the fun. You know, you mentioned Roland Emmerich. Uh, I was an actor in his, the first movie he did in English. And uh, this story is probably too long for this interview, but I'm gonna tell it to you anyway. Uh, uh, we came to the last day of shooting and we had run out of money on the movie. Roland had mortgaged his brother's house to pay for the film and there was no more money. And in the script, it said, they walked through a futuristic prison, 40 stories tall and 40 stories deep. And he, we'd run out of money, he hadn't built the set yet. And we had to shoot it. This is the last day of shooting. So he asked everybody on set, how much money do you have in your pockets? And we all reached into our pockets and between all of us, we had $4,000. So he took the money and he had one person go out and buy black paint, one person buy slabs of glass, one person buy rolls of toilet paper before they're chopped, and another person buy, bought salad oil. Well, he took those doles, he painted them black, he threw salad oil on them and made them shiny and he put them in a row. He took the glass, he painted black on the back of them, he laid them on the ground on the ceiling so they became mirrors and it looked 40 stories tall and 40 stories deep, and he got the entire crew to roll up their sleeves and stick it through the bars like this, and, and all of us actors walked through it, and it looked like a futuristic prison, 40 stories tall and 40 stories deep. That, to me, is filmmaking. Anyone can make a movie when you have millions and millions of dollars, but it takes a real interesting and innovative filmmaker to go, all right, I don't have anything. I don't want to compromise. How do I get what I want with what I have? That's when it gets really fun. Terra Meta Studios is the premium factual production arm of Red Bull, founded 12 years ago by Dr. Walter Kohler, the one-time boss of Austrian public broadcaster ORF's natural history unit, Universum. Best known for blue-chip wildlife documentaries, the company has branched out into fiction in recent years with a number of features and now series, teaming up with former NBC Entertainment chief Paul Telegdi's new business The Whole Spiel on several titles, including a reimagining of Edgar Rice Burroughs' Tarzan. Terramator Head of Features and Special Projects Michael Franchowski spoke with me at MIPCOM in Cannes last week about how he hopes to reinvent the iconic character as the first eco-warrior and free-runner within a truly diverse context and what else the firm is working on. My name is Michael Franchkowski. I'm working as Head of Features and Special Projects for Terramata Studios, based in Vienna. I mainly work as a producer. Uh, I'm responsible for all our feature doc activities, our scripted feature TV series activities, and so-called special projects, meaning uh, it's an exhibition project. We also are part of a, a training initiative based in, in Vienna, a European one called the Screen Institute and are also um, doing science communication. Uh, so we, we do science communication with CERN or for CERN and we are linked to the European Space Agency and have other projects. So that's kind of all under my umbrella. But let's say main activity is feature docs and uh, scripted. 
And so um, Terramata, just put it into context, I guess some people who may not be familiar with the company may not know that it's part of Red Bull and essentially focused on the, the premium natural history space. But, um, you know, just tell us a little bit more about that heritage, if you would. So, exactly. So we're part of, of the Red Bull group. Uh, Red Bull is our mother company. The company was founded uh, 2011 and run by Walter Köhler, who was head of Universum at the public broadcaster ORF. And there he was responsible for really blue chip, high end, wonderful nature documentaries. And, and this was or is still the core business of the company. This was the reason um, why it got founded with the support uh, of Red Bull and Mr. Mateschitz back then who really is also in this topic, nature, beauty, science, helping to preserve the planet. So that's the core business, and this was also the beginning of the business when, when Walter especially and, and the teams realized that uh, the world is changing. We thought of also an additional way to bring across our DNA in an entertaining, main, more mainstreamy way, and this is where um, the idea of developing feature films. This is how we started with scripted feature films started and that was also the point um, when I joined the company because my background was more scripted and fiction by that time and, and together with the team um, we started working on feature films and we produced three feature films. And you're now moving into series which is a really interesting development as well. Can you tell us about some of the uh, the projects that you've got underway there? Yes, uh, to go into to series with all the streamers coming popping up some years ago uh, was kind of a natural step from the feature film world. Uh, we learned a lot uh, from the successes and the mistakes you do over the period, but of course, with on one hand, with the changing landscape, uh, the demand on, on on series, and and then also realizing that a lot of our topics and and uh, our DNA and stuff, which is interesting, is hardly to be limited in a feature film so so the idea started let's develop also serious projects uh, where you're also able to show more complex connections and and stories so and of course and we love tv series so there are so many i think the whole market uh, rocketed into quality and um and we saw a big potential to bring across our message and the first one that you're doing is based on tarzan is that correct well, I, I would hope it will be the first one. I mean, first one which really goes into production. Um, we have a couple of series, but one of them is, is, a, is a Tarzan series, which also is from the scope, uh, the biggest project, and, and, and quite special because it's, uh, it's not a classical, meaning not, not, not classical filmed uh, with actors, cameras, shooting locations. So that's a complete different approach to the series and, and to the brand, um, Tarzan. Yes, I would love to be the first, but nevertheless, it's a big project, yes. Tarzan and another series called Rogue, which is as Tarzan also truly and fully in our DNA. Tarzan being, in a way, you can say, um, the first eco-warrior protecting nature and, and, and animals. Um, already back then, more than 110 years ago, when Edgar Rice Barris created it. In a way, he was also the first free runner. <laughs> which also fits into a wider world, uh, athletic, and also Rogue, mentioning the other series, which we developed over the last years, uh, which is a wildlife crime thriller series, which we do in co-production with wildlife films from Derek and Beverly Joubert. And the initiation of this 
series was simply based on our feature dogs, Sea of Shadows and the Ivory Game especially, which won a lot of awards and also created a lot of impact and in which we showed really the, the downside and the ugly part of the ivory trade of, of all wildlife crimes poaching, trafficking, all the, the nasty things. And during the production of, of these uh, feature docs, we realized the limits of a documentary film. Um, on one hand, that you can't film where it's, when it's getting too dangerous. I mean, we were at the, so, so really what's happening behind closed doors, you rarely, and only with high risks, you can show. And, and that's also the interesting thing. So we know exactly how all the deals are done and all the dirty work happened. But with the documentary, we were limited to it. Then we thought we have to create a series and these topics to show the full scope of the disaster and of, of the story. And the second reason to really heavily go into fiction was that with documentaries, you reach a specific audience. And then as we are impact-driven, we really want to drive change and want to draw attention to the issues uh, in our world. We, we felt and, and said we have to find a way to bring it more to the main, mainstream, to the people sitting at home in the evening, drinking water, a glass of beer or whatever, and just want to be entertained and at the same time ideally educated on stuff which they're usually not dealing with. So that was the intention. And so what stage are those two projects at at the moment? And um, I'm wondering, you know, in terms of the, the funding and the finance behind them as well. So, of course, um, I wouldn't call it luxury, but, but um, the mindset, especially from the beginning, um, to focus on all nature, impact-driven environmental topics was wonderful and also fully supported by by Red Bull and, and Mr. Matajic back then, and, and this is continuous, that, that we are in a position to take risks, you know, have, have development funds, so that, that's a big, um, big freedom. Nevertheless, we are a um, for-profit company, so we also have to earn money and um, have to make it work, so, so it's not that, um, you know, everything is uh, fully funded or, no, no, we have to deal with the market we have to finance or get our projects financed through the usual funding ways, subsidies, tax credits, pre-sales, partnerships, whatever. So in this way, we are competing with everybody else, really. And this is, I think, makes a big, big change because uh, to get stuff off the ground is mostly the most tricky part because you need the money for script development and other things. And there, yes, there we are really um, blessed that this is easier but um, now we have to perform. And who are the production partners that you're working with on uh, these, these uh, projects? So on Tarzan, which is really um, just a few words on Tarzan in general, it's a um, modern Tarzan, so it's a reboot of the Tarzan brand. It is created by Andy Briggs, who wrote to the 100-year uh, anniversary three novels on the modern Tarzan and the modern Jane, really took out all the... Uh, colonialistic and, and uh, sexistic, whatever, the old stuff out and, and created these new heroes. And also a kick-ass Jane, who is uh, not only the blonde damsel in the jungle, so now he's really, she's really um, equal in a way to Tarzan. So he, he wrote these novels, so Andy Briggs, and with this uh, company Shingle, Shingle Media from the UK. We work with Andy on already on, on some other projects. He's really a brilliant writer, producer, and, and really multi-talented so when he 
got the chance to, because with a good relation to the ERB at Carice Burroughs Estate, who were frustrated that nothing was really going on on the TV side. Warner Brothers uh, was holding the rights for years. Nothing happened, um, and they really have a good relation. So we got the offer to get the, the rights, and, and it's trademarked, so you have to get the Edgar Rice Burroughs estate, you have to get the rights, otherwise you're not able to do a Tarzan, Tarzan show or Tarzan feature films. Um, so there we joined forces with uh, Shingle Media, and uh, it will be a 100% digital, hyper-real, photorealistic, Unreal Engine-based TV show, which means it's a completely different workflow and um, requires also different attention. And for this, we teamed up with another Viennese Austrian company called Friendly Fire, who were experts in, in the unreal world, um, dealing with this for years. And jointly, we created workflows and proof of concepts and everything. And he developed together with his partner. Um, from Jingle Media um, and, and co-writer Tom Kinnemont, the pilot script and the series Bible. And then we adapted it to this new concept and tested, is this really feasible? Does it work? In the beginning was planned as a virtual production, meaning real actors using LED volumes in front of artificial backgrounds. But we realized as Tarzan is you know, it's hard to, to keep him in a stage because it's, it's daylight, bright light jungle um, and, and animals and swinging through and a lot of action. Uh, we felt, uh, we tested it, we felt the limit of a studio and limit to be linked to a background. So this is why we went a step further and created the 100% digital approach. And you're also, am I right in thinking that the whole spiel, um, Paul Telegdi's new company, are they, are they a partner on the project as well? Exactly. So they are a partner. Um, so this we just recently announced here in, in, at MIP. We are very happy that we're working with whole spiel from Paul Telegdi and, and his uh, cousin Stefan and also their producer uh, Christopher Linnequist, who I know personally for decades now, and with Paul and, and Stefan really being active now uh, as a studio with the whole spiel, we really found like-minded people, had several conversations and created a strategy jointly, and now we'll tackle Tarzan, but also tackle our wildlife crime series Rogue, which is compared to Tarzan more classical production way. And we also teamed up on two of their projects uh, a New King, which is a geopolitical TV series, very interesting topic, and a true crime history series called The Executioner. They are driven creatively by the whole spiel, and we team up and jointly do ideally four projects together. So Rogue, we do together, as I said, with um, developed, it's created by Derek Joubert, Derek and Beverly Joubert, who we know and work together for decades and are really true, dearly friends. And they're, they're incredible people. Derek is an incredible conservationist, environmentalist, um, filmmaker, you name it, businessman, um, and just a, a wonderful person. And um, so really we joined our experiences with our feature dogs and, 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 and his experience living in Africa and dealing with all this uh, crime and atrocities. So we teamed up and, and he created the rogue approach as its current is and with uh, whom we now go to the market. So it's in co-production with, it's a co-production with Terramata, Wildlife Films and now new, new partner is the Hochspiel. Yeah. And so are you looking for networks to 
to pick up these shows you you say there's an element of self-funding i mean what what stage are you going to be taking them to or have you got announcements on that from where where do we expect to see them or where do you hope to see them and when oh and very good question um well self-funding so we coming back to this we we really invested a lot in the development and it took quite a while to get it to the to the stage um i mean apart from there was a pandemic and other things and their complex themes um so it's it, it truly helps to be you know part of a strong partner but no as i said before we we um, really aim beneath and and looking for no market money and market partners each project has of course different um tarzan is quite special as I, as i mentioned so it's it's something new brand new and rogue is more on a classic way we figured out ways of course as everybody else is doing the way how to use tax credit subsidies as, as best as possible so we have some some money already aligned there we have interest from financing partners um and now jointly especially we're happy with holspiel to really joint forces to to tackle the market so ideally I mean Tarzan I, I can talk hours for, for Tarzan which I don't want to do now for your sake um it's a different strategy yes um due to the nature of the project there are uh, in a way it's not only a TV series it's it's really a Tarzan world which we are creating with a lot of other opportunities beyond this educational stuff we we also can tap into the gaming and as everything is 100% digital created it leaves room for a lot of things way beyond just TV series on the on the screen so that's an interesting process and and what partner are we looking for it's first of all a partner who also sees it as we do that this uh, this is here to stay the new technologies and also the look and in a way we are open to to conversations i mean we, we created the structure of of uh, we already have financing of us as a set um, for for investment and the tax credits and this leaves a chunk for market signal and and we really hope as tarzan is a worldwide ip that it hopefully a smooth process so it could be famous word anchor broadcaster or maybe one partner or a streamer who is not taking the whole world because this is not exactly what we are interested in so not a buyout deal that's not our priority there on rogue uh, similar structure subsidies in investment opportunities in, in both projects we really uh, want to fully embrace the african characters of both projects and truly embrace and include also african talent in directing and writing and and also in the filmmaking um, as we will and ideally also on Tarzan or to do a lot in Africa with African people so genuinely embracing it fully uh, and with Rogue the same already with uh, Derek Joubert but um being in Africa but but also really fully embrace a diverse creative team and what demographic is Tarzan in particular aimed at you know i mean i guess it was a, always a sort of a childhood kind of property in many ways but what what sort of uh, age range are you looking at for that well it's always uh, we had uh, long discussions how to best phrase it uh, and in the end came up with uh, it's it's more for an audience which would uh, which uh, the whole the family would like to watch Indiana Jones so it's not not too young i mean not not preschool or anything so it's but it's really a full family experience it's action driven it's it's fun but at the same time it's also you know not not uh, too childish so really is something for the bigger family group but not too young so i think the uh, indiana jones range maybe is is a is a good thing to 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 get an idea 
And um, it's very interesting that you began this journey, or, or rather Terramata began this journey sort of 2018 sort of time, or, or you, you, you came back to the company, I think, at that point to, um, to really kind of get behind this initiative. The world's changed quite a lot since then, obviously. You mentioned the, the pandemic, but there's also been the, uh, the great... Netflix correction, as I think people have, have called it. So there was a massive push among the streamers into premium mm-hmm. uh, documentary, premium factual, natural history, blue chip natural history. That kind of supercharged that sector, I'm assuming, to, to, to the benefit of companies such as, as Terramata. And now just, you know, everything seems to be contracting and it's very interesting that a, a factual company is making the move into scripted just as scripted perhaps is feeling the squeeze more than anything else um well i mean i mean yes of course the market change um not that we would have foreseen it when we started really to go more into series because fiction we 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 started developing in 2012 so really quite soon after uh after the company was founded but yes true um we are known and and public uh, publicly known for our tv and and blue chip documentary um and despite the fact that we did three video films somehow it is, is not a known factor so in a way it's you know for us internally an organic thing to develop from features into tv series and of course um the reasons why we're not not purely market driven uh, at the same time yes we, we had the successful feature docs and, and a couple of others winning a lot of festivals really also being financially um, sufficient and and successful um, but then also realized um, and then i mean you, if you think that uh, feature doc uh, to the, from a to z it uh, can can take up to 10 12 years and and uh, the ones which we are currently bringing into the market which is quite worrying, had a production period, including the pandemic, madness and so on, of uh, four to five years. Uh, so we made decisions four to five years ago before the market collapsed to do these films. And, and uh, so due to this, it's been hard to react uh, when the market changed so drastically as, as it did and, and the concept, what we were doing, you know, taking, taking risk because uh, some of the topics you can't wait for half a year to find another partner and another four months to apply with a subsidy scheme. So, so it's, it's really, uh, and that there was also an advantage from us that we can take the risk and, and um, can make the decision as it's happening and, and do it when it's happening. So this kind of, um, yeah, was a shock that the market changed that drastically. So um, but that was not the driving force to go into scripted or into the series world somehow it fall all in the same place and again there the market already is changing again uh, it's not we are not the only one um, you know um, emphasizing on on series now so others are doing it so but we hope we will find our way despite not having the proven expertise of of producing a long-running tv series yet this is why we also um, we're looking for for like-minded partner and partners like the whole spiel, um, to jointly do it. And, and we really hope that um, our topics are interesting and, and maybe stand out in the market. Tarzan as a worldwide IP, I mean, it's, it's a promising start. And to my knowledge, there is not out there yet any wildlife crime 
series. We know there were many attempts because due to our, based on our, our feature docs, the Ivory Game SEO Shaders really inspired a lot of filmmakers and writers um, because the way how we you know, produced the documentaries was really more like a Sicario fiction style, but it was reality. Um, but somehow um, we are not aware that it really um, is this already um, busy with uh, wildlife crime thriller topics. We, we, we do not have anyone. So we hope that, that we'll have a chance as it's really an interesting untold topic. So that's our plan, hope, idea. Amsterdam-based Lineup Industries was launched by former Endemol and Sony executives Ed Lewis and Julian Curtis almost 10 years ago, with the pair going on to build out an independent distribution business representing titles including Long Lost Family, Emergency Call and, new at MIPCOM last week, Interview with History and Space Challenge Mission to Mars. Curtis spoke with me in Cannes about the company's latest crop of shows, why Belgium is emerging as a hotter formats market than the Netherlands, and the benefits of being an independent when networks are taking fewer risks and consolidation is continuing. I'm Julian Curtis from Lineup Industries, um, which is a, uh, a bespoke, uh, I guess, a boutique format distribution company. We're probably most famous internationally for one of our big titles being Long Lost Family, um, which is on ITV, has been running for many seasons and in fact has just been renewed for seasons 14 and 15. Um, which will be in production for next year and 24 and 25, um, and which we sell around the world, um, both the UK versions and as a format. But we are mostly focused on formats. We represent um, anybody from small independent companies, so quite a few small indies, um, mostly Nordics, Northern Europe, so Belgium, Holland, uh, some German, a um, couple of UK titles, um, and uh, Australian uh, producers that we work with. And then uh, we also work very closely with quite a few public broadcasters. Um, public broadcasters, again, from Belgium, Holland, which um, I think we, we um, were quite fortunate to, to be working with the Belgians at a time where Belgian formats and production seem to be quite hot. Um, mostly, I think, that's because of the way that they have um, quite a creative aspect and they always put a bit of a, a little twist on uh, all the formats that they make. So that's the kind of people that we represent. Um, we sell these formats worldwide and then we sell the associated tape that comes from it. So for instance, the UK long lost family sells around the world. Yeah, and there's a lot of it. So there's a hundred or so episodes of that and hundred or so episodes of the US version, which we sell alongside the format. We are here at MIPCOM 2023 in Cannes. We are in the press club, which at one time was a, a VIP club, which is overlooking the harbour. It's a lovely spot. Um, I believe it has a particular relevance to you as well. It does, actually. When we, um, we, so we were previously, Ed and I worked together um, at Sony, Sony Pictures, where we were fortunate enough to sell titles like uh, Dragon's Den and Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. But as we set up by ourselves, we had no stand or any backers or anything. So we actually, when this was the VIP club, we were able to come here for free. And we held all of our meetings here. So actually, for us, it's, it's a bit like coming back to the beginning of it all again. So, um, so quite nice. Hadn't been back here for a few years. So it's nice to see. And this time round, what are the shows that you're presenting to the international marketplace? Um, so we've got four new formats, which I think is 
from what we've been told from our clients at least, um, probably one of the biggest sort of fresh offerings on the market for formats at least, and a lot of reboots from even some of the big guys. Um, but we have four formats, um, one of which um, has created quite a stir because it's this, this kind of hybrid between um, factual and drama, uh, fictionalization, which is called Interview with History, which came from Belgium, which uh, launched on VRT six, seven, eight weeks ago. Um, they made six episodes, and it's the first show that the public broadcasters had that has beaten Married at First Sight, so um, big hit for them. Um, and um, yeah, it, it blends fact, uh, well, a, a factual show with, with a dramatic reconstruction in which we basically interview, or at least in Belgium in the initial series, we interview uh, the kings of Belgium, of which there are only five, so quite a handy first season. Um, alongside that, we have a, a house-flipping show from Holland, which was uh, launched on RTL4. Um, we're working with a, a producer that, that makes actually a lot of these property shows in Holland for a big range of clients out there. And um, they've done a lot of third-party formats as well as some of their own. And what they took is, is they basically all of the inconveniences of making property shows, which tend to have a long lead time and, and, and high budgets, they've tried to compress all of that to sort of fit in with the modern budgeting requirements that broadcasters have, while still rating very well um, and, and minimizing the costs and, and the duration of the filming. So, so that's been really quite popular. Uh, alongside that, we've had a, a show which is about accents, and um, somebody described it as hiding the broccoli. So it's really a show about culture, but really it's a comedy show um, in which uh, uh, an actor or actress, um, in this case, she works on a kind of a Saturday Night Live show in Holland. She's extremely well um, known and recognizable, and she is going to learn an accent or a dialect from a, a region in the country, um, and a celebrity is going to invite her. and. Um, basically help teach her this accent and she is going to go undercover so it's got a slight old school feel about undercover uh, filming and uh, and it's this undercover stunt um, which has worked well and then alongside that we've got a space show um, and that is a kids family entertainment show and it's a public broadcaster show it's about a trip to Mars um, it's one that we we've um, promoted quite heavily um, and what we're delivering with that, these, these, these are kind of for slots which normally attract quite a low budget, but what we have is there's a lot of augmented reality technology in it, there's a lot of uh, research, and we're working with the European Space Agency on that one, and we have a huge package that we deliver, including of the, all the augmented reality. So uh, it's kind of a bit of a plug-and-play system, all the research is there, access to European Space Agency. Um, uh, facilities um, and talent. So the astronauts who, who feature in the show are, are supplied by European Space Agency. And um, what's the reaction been like? Uh, we've heard <coughs> various things down here, I guess, in terms of the themes, the, the, the hot topics that have been running throughout the week. Some people are sort of hailing the rebirth of distribution with, mm -hmm. you know, the US studios returning to licensing, having kind of been holding back rights to their own shows and um, you know, greater flexibility from, from streamers, so that's been opening up opportunities, but at the same time it sounds like it's very hard in the production space and, and in terms of like green lights and commissions, particularly for original programs, seems to be very much uh, struggling at the moment. Um, it's what I've been hearing a lot of, um, but of course the, that cloud is in a way as a format distributor the silver lining, because for us we supply tape, we supply ratings, um, so as a commissioner 
while you might be a little bit more concerned about taking a new development, it's much easier to look at something that's got the ratings and has got the tape and they can see and they can imagine their own talent in there. So, you know, as a format distributor, in a way, that's kind of, um, of course, it, it, it's still tough because, um, it, 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 you know, you, obviously there, there are fewer commissions going around. But for a commissioner, it's an easier decision when you've got the tape and you've got the ratings and, and um, so on. You were talking about the, the sort of creativity, the ingenuity of the, the, the Belgian, you know, the Dutch market, the Flemish market in general, obviously one of the standard bearers, as it were, the, the originators of the formats industry as we know it today. So, uh, you know, how strong is that creativity right now, would you say? One of the big hits that's come out of the territory has obviously been The Traitors, not one of yours, but uh, that one has taken the globe by storm as well. Yeah. Uh, yes, I mean, I think Holland's maybe not quite the creative powerhouse it once was. Um, I, um, you know, Big Brother, all of those great shows, uh, Fear Factor, the Deal or No Deal, the sort of shows that in fact, I used to sell. Um, they, yeah, they've maybe taken a slight bit of a back seat compared to Belgium, where a lot of creativity is coming out. I think there's, you know, a couple of big formats on the market uh, from there. We've had a big success with a couple of the titles. I mean, um, well, having said that, Long Lost Family is Dutch and is a 20-year-old show and, and still performs and still rates uh, wherever it goes. But Belgium, I think, has been a bit of a bigger risk taker of late. Um, and has provided us with a very fertile ground for, for new formats and they commission uh, quite a lot of new bold ideas and they're willing to take a chance on uh, producers um, young and old uh, we've had some one of the formats that we had uh, a little while back was um, two 20 year olds who'd been given an opportunity to, to make a sports show which i don't think you would get in many territories um so you know i think it's that boldness and 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 that looking for some a fresh take on everything um that they do uh, last market we brought an interview show which was really an interview show which was completely turned on its head um you would typically get a celebrity interview show on uh, in a studio and this one's about going with your parents and 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 sort of uh, Basically, the parents uh, are um, being interviewed um, with their kid, uh, the kid being a grown-up at this stage, um, who's a celebrity, and we get to learn about their life, and it's just a very intimate portrait, and, um, you know, a celebrity is uh, obviously, you know, treated in a certain way by a, a normal interviewer, but when they're walking with their parent and the interview is happening there, they're really just somebody's kid, and there's a sort of a certain freshness and boldness to that format, um, which, you know, um, they took a chance on. Sometimes, you know, they take the swings, and, and sometimes they, they don't work, of course, but, but mostly they do. So um, we're very fortunate to have that. It's quite a rich seam of creativity to bring into our catalogue. So the four formats that we brought to this market, two were from Holland, two were from Belgium. What about life as an independent distributor? Obviously, there's been tremendous consolidation within the industry over the, the past few years. It continues apace. I mentioned the traitors earlier on. One of the big stories hanging over the market is the potential merger of all three media with another company that may or may not be ITV. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what impact is, is, is all of that consolidation having upon you? And, you know, what are independent players like yourselves doing to respond to that market? Um some well first of all you know if you're talking about public broadcasters we i guess we're our advantage at least how we position ourselves in the market is that we have worked on all the big shows we were at endemol um 
for many years, more than I'd care to mention. Um, and we then went to Sony. So I, th I guess we have the experience of working on very big titles, on uh, big deals uh, internationally, you know, with the likes of Big Brother, say Fear Factor, some of those sort of big brands that, that were around, um, Millionaire and things like that. Um, but being independent uh, means that public broadcasters in particular, we're, we're not the big commercial beasts. So for them, it's kind of we're the acceptable face of commercialism in a way because we're just a small indie. Um, so, so they can trust us to, to get the best deals for them. But at the same time, we're no threat to anybody and we're not going to be... Um, well, you know, sometimes things might be written in the press if they're working with a, a big studio or something like that, which which may seem that they're being a bit too commercially minded. Um, so, so we can do that. And then, and in terms of the indies, you know, a lot of indies want to give us their shows because one, they know the inner workings of the groups because a lot of them were at some point working for one of the big production groups, so they know that perhaps their titles given to us are given more prominence than if they were put into a huge massive catalogue where it might just get lost somewhere along the way. Um, and, you know, we have a very tailored approach so we can sort of give them the care and the attention that, that they need. And we don't necessarily pick everything up that we get offered and sometimes we feel that we might not be the right person for that and we might advise our clients to, to go elsewhere or find them, you know, another partner to distribute it. Um, and um, at other times, you know, we, we can't have a huge catalogue because we're, we're obviously quite a small company and we like to, to take what we really like and what we feel we can sell. And that's a bit of a luxury position, I guess, to be in. But um, being an independent, we can do that. And we can just work with anyone. That's the other advantage. We can, you know, we can work with a big production group if we want or if we feel it's necessary or if they're interested, um, just as well as we can work directly with a network or through an advertising agency or, or you know, um, with the talent attached. So, so we, it gives us that freedom. And I think for a lot of our clients, they can see that as the advantage that it is rather than being, um, yeah, sometimes your IP is just stuck within a group and it just doesn't go anywhere. And I think it could be frustrating for some. Um, and uh, so for us, that's, that's what we offer. And I think you know, that seems to resonate with uh, quite a lot of indies as well as the publics. Talking about resonating, that's the, uh, the sound of the uh, <laughs> traditional can uh, drinks, trolleys echoing in the background behind us. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm just wondering what your key takeaways have been from this week at MIPCOM. What have been the, the sort of the key industry takeaways for you from, from this week? If you have the right show, you can sell it. And that's it, you know. I think, um, yes, there are fewer opportunities, but if you have the right show, people will buy it. And there is still a market out there. It's just harder to get to. But um, as I say, we, we've been, we've got the very distinctive shows, and I think that's maybe perhaps what sets us apart. And when our buyers come to see us, they're always expecting something a little bit different, something a spin on perhaps a, a, a usual topic, uh, one that, that, you know, they've seen. So um, we're fortunate enough to have some creative, interesting, bold shows, and um, that resonates, and people are still in the market for buying those. Julian Curtis speaking with me at MIPCOM in Kent last week. That's all for this episode, but you can hear more interviews by tuning in to our C21 FM internet radio station from Monday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name is Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.